0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to After the Storm. This is Roha. And this is Hamna. And today we're sitting down and having more of a serious conversation compared to, I think, some of the other stuff we're doing this season. With us right now is Dr. Anjabeen Ashraf, a counselor and an educator from Oregon. Her goal is to help everyone live their most authentic lives by setting better boundaries. Part of this work is examining systems of oppression and working towards liberation for all. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ashraf. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. I think it's something that we've always been very conscious of is having ongoing conversations around mental health and mental wellness, particularly for people in our community, right? And that's South Asian, that's Pakistani Muslim communities. So um, for this season, I think we came across your work on social media and we thought it would be amazing to just have us sit down with you and chat about you and the work that you do.
1: Sure. So hi, everybody, and salam. Um, I'm Anjabi Ashraf and the background that I would like to share with you about myself is that I am the first generation to grow up in the United States. My parents and I immigrated from Pakistan, even though I was born in Pakistan, I was very young when I moved here. And so I'm the eldest of three siblings. And so I have navigated dual identities. And actually, I would say maybe like tri identities, um, specifically as a Muslim as well. Um, And then four, if you add in woman. As you can tell, identities are very complicated. And so I've 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 navigated this really complicated landscape of growing up in all those identities here in the United States for a long time now. And I found my way into counseling almost by happenstance. I'm happy to tell you about that in a little bit, but I'm really glad that I have because I think that not only has it allowed me to walk alongside people's journey to being to being best version of themselves and being happier but I've also it's enriched my life right Um, everything that I learned um, has been able to be applied to my own life to make my own relationship stronger to help me navigate a better relationship with myself to deepen my own spirituality um, to help me walk with more confidence in this world so I'm I'm really really happy to be in the space that i'm in right now and uh specifics about who i am um like as a person as versus as dr ushra i uh love horror movies and but not gory horror movies because i just don't like gore but like you know like psychological thrillers, thrillers yes. yeah thrillers. it's a good
0: one that you watched recently
1: Oh, that's a great question. You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. So the Bly
2: Manor was a pretty good one. And then Hauntingville House. I just enjoy being scared. So I like looked up all <laughs> the jump scares beforehand. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <I> was... <laughs> that's amazing. She's ready. She's ready. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I didn't note it. And I, like, <laughs> watched it in Broad Daylight like, in the library.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, sometimes if I know something's coming because you can like sense the tension building, mm-hmm. I put the I put the TV on on mute because that's how they get you, right? It's like yes. the 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 loud music. Yeah, so I'll just put it on mute and then watch the jump scare through that.
0: Maybe I'll combine both of those strategies and watch haunting the yes. <laughs> There you go. There you
1: go. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. So scary movies. Um, I love to drink a lot of coffee. And I drink it black mostly, but I do love a good Vietnamese coffee. Yeah. Have
2: you ever had that? i wanted to try Vietnamese coffee. I've heard it's really good.
1: It's really yummy. I just get, and and maybe people will think this is not real Vietnamese coffee, but I get the (laughs) pockets from the Asian grocery store. Mm. I was introduced to this by my friend in college, and it's just so yummy. And now that I, whenever I travel, I look for that country's, like, coffee specialty. I've discovered some yummy coffee in Malaysia that I brought back friends and um and then I was like you know I sent it to my friend I was like oh here's some Malaysian coffee and my friend was like this is great I ran out so I bought some online and I was like the internet ruins everything there's just nothing <laughs> special anymore you can right. get anything everywhere I remember when I used to travel as a kid to Pakistan and in the airport was the only place you could get Do you remember tablaron? Yes. yes oh yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Now you can get it anywhere. And I'm just like, where's the <laughs> specialness anymore? Come on.
0: All righty. Um, so kind of going into the next thing we want to talk about, we want to touch on how you became a doctor, how you pursued your PhD, what that journey was like. Um, and also, you know, aside from just the academic side of things, the family side of things, what was that like convincing your family, or if you even had to do that, um, to do a PhD program? Because it's not very common. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so I always say that I stumbled into my PhD program to set it up for everybody. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision. What that really means is that I am trained to, I'm trained to train counselors and to Mm -hmm. supervise. And you don't have to have a Ph.D. to do counseling. It's a master's degree that you have to have and then some postgraduate training hours. And so I got my master's degree in counseling in Houston. And I remember I was in my fifth year of college. I'm sorry, my fourth year of college. I was about to graduate. And so I thought, you know, I consulted with a uh, psychology professor of mine. He said, have you thought about a counseling degree? And at that point, I didn't even know about counseling as a specific, separate entity as compared to psychology. Mm -hmm. And so I looked into it, applied, was accepted. And I remember as I was graduating with a master's degree, my professor said, oh, you need to go get your PhD. And I said, nope, I'm tired. No way. Just get out of here. Get out of my face (laughs) with that. Um, No. And uh, it was about six months after I had graduated, that I thought, wow, I really miss school. uh, And I really miss learning. I really miss being in the classroom. And I thought about how, when I was going through my master's training, how there were no professors who looked like me, who had had similar life experiences as me. And I thought, I want to be that professor right even if i can just be one professor for that one muslim student one dsc student or just one bipoc student right who isn't white because we know that um, a, a large numbers of the mental health professions are white and a large number of the mental health professional faculty who train these people are white and so i really from that lens said okay i'm gonna apply for a phd So I applied at North Carolina, was accepted, and I started about a year. About a year and a half after I had finished my master's degree, so there wasn't a lot of you know time in between.
0: Yeah.
1: As far as convincing my parents, I had applied without telling them, and then it was time for the interview, and I didn't have to go in person, but I wanted to go in person because I wanted mm-hmm. to check out the city and you know of all that course. stuff. And so at that point, I couldn't just slip away without them noticing, so I had to <laughs> tell them. And my family, in many ways, is very traditional in the sense that, you know, girls don't travel alone, girls don't live alone um, before marriage or outside of marriage or anything like that. And so I remember sitting down and telling my parents was probably one of the scariest things I've ever done because of where I was in my developmental process. It was a really big deal for me to say, hey, I'm going on this interview and what I was asking for was bigger than the interview. It was a possibility that I was going to move mm-hmm. out and go do my PhD. Yeah. So I went, I got in, and then I remember my parents really actually didn't fight back much. Um, they were sad. but I think for them, and I capitalized on this, let's be honest, I, I calculated <laughs> this, that sometimes the only the only acceptable reason to move out of home, is for something equivalent to a doctorate, right? Whether it's yeah. MD, whether it's DO, whether it's PhD, even JD, right? Mm-hmm. That's appropriate, yes. that's acceptable. And so I was actually really proud of my mom um, because she didn't hide it from anybody. You know, she could have mm-hmm. just pretended like I disappeared for four years. Um, so honestly, I think I was really lucky in that my parents didn't didn't have enormous hurdles for me to do the PhD. Mm -hmm. I will say that my mom had real concerns about me being able to be on this timeline that they see Muslim women have to be on of like marriage, career, babies. Um but she also was like, okay, she doesn't want to do this. I can't, you know, if you tell if you ask her, she'll be like, I can't make her do anything. Um so yeah. So she went along with it. So I'm actually still very proud of my parents for how they reacted.
2: I think one part that I want to highlight which I want to touch upon on later as well is parental support goes a long way mm-hmm. and that's something that we need to have a conversation about especially within like South Asian spaces and open communication or and even Muslim spaces because I know um, some kids struggle a lot with that mm-hmm. and that's just so important because I think sometimes children don't realize that parents might have their own mental health journey and like and then vice versa too, right? Mm-hmm. Parents don't realize
0: that kids Absolutely. are going through
2: such a transformative time, and it's just,
0: we need so much care surrounding yeah. those conversations. Yeah, and I think at every generational level, right, you need to interject at some point, because a lot of our grandparents have lived through the partition, and the trauma of that affected how they raised their children, and mm-hmm. those, particularly for ones who moved abroad, the challenges. is, with that affected how they raised us so it's just so much to unpack there i think this is a
2: really good segue into
0: our next topic
2: which is south asian and muslim mental health specifically which um you highlight right and it's an important part of your work so we just wanted to you to speak a little bit more on that why did you choose to specifically you know your research centers around this subject too so why specifically focus in this sphere
0: I think
1: that the reason I chose to focus on it is because it is my lived experience right and it's still the communities that I interact with and I want them to be well and I personally have gone through a transformation with a lot of work that I have seen the like you know it's almost like y'all can't see me because it's a podcast but I'm doing this whole like you know, like. There were, like, streams of wellness radiating off of me as I was doing my own work, which then affected mm-hmm. my family to do their own work, which then affects the people around them. And so, you know, there's this whole kind of individualistic versus collectivist fight that's always happening, mm-hmm. but I think both are meaningful right our collective communities are only as healthy as the individuals in them are and so the reason i decided to step very publicly into social media and start doing this work is because yes i do counseling i do one-on-one work that is meaningful right and at a public kind of collective level if we're not calling these things out we're not even creating spaces for this who's even going to come into counseling who's even going to see mm-hmm. that they might might need the support of counseling who's going to you know get their child counseling and i kept thinking to myself i literally said to several people last year when i started my social that i wish i would have had a slightly elder person having these conversations with me mm-hmm. So I often think about what did I need when I was growing up? What did I need validated? What did I need pointed out? What space did I need held for me? And so that's really
2: where I lead from. I kind of want to talk about some of the key reoccurring issues in our communities that you've noticed and, you know, where the conversations surrounding mental health, you know, can be applicable to a lot of communities. But what are some things that you've seen reoccurring in our communities that don't get talked about? a lot especially Mm -hmm. the work that you do yeah uh hands
1: down trauma right and i you know and i think the way we even think about trauma has changed within the past 10 years you know we used to think of big t traumas like sexual trauma or physical trauma Mm -hmm. um, or like single occurrence trauma where i got into a really bad accident or you know i was in an abusive relationship Um, and so now we know that things like neglect can be traumatic right things like not being able to um having like a really chaotic household you know where you're feeling you're like you don't know what's going to happen moment to moment which is really important for a developing brain um all of that can be traumatic right and Mm -hmm. I always say that I'm not here to tell people what is and isn't traumatic if it was traumatic for you it's traumatic we don't serve our communities by saying oh that's not real right? Mm -hmm. Um, So what I end up seeing happening is intergenerational transmission of trauma. So you all said this earlier where partition was traumatic. And then those folks were probably our grandparents or great grandparents. And then they raised children from that lens. And then maybe those children, our parents, moved here. And then the trauma of immigration and Mm -hmm. um, uh, getting used to a new place and Grieving the loss of the ease with which they used to navigate systems and feeling like a stranger all the time and just racism, right? And Islamophobia. So all of that is traumatic, and then it gets passed down to the children in any number of ways, right? It's, it informs how they parent, how they are able to show up for their children. It informs what rules they set. Um, it informs what kind of involvement they have in their child's lives. It informs the values they pass on to their kids and then you have you know the next generation who absorbs all this without recognizing what's happening because they don't have They just don't have the recognition. They're kids, right? Mm -hmm. And even as they're growing up, and then you become an adult, and then, you know, you pass that on to your own children, unless you step in to stop that by doing the work on one, recognizing it, and then two, thinking about what do I want to take with me, and what is not serving me, right? Mm Because I'm not going to say that everything our parents gave us is bad. It's not. Mm -hmm. They gave us a lot of beautiful things, right? And um, we don't have to carry all of it if it's not serving us. Mm-hmm. So intergenerational transmission of trauma is hands down the number one thing. And I think for many things, that is the core, right? Yeah. Um, it'll show up as anxiety. It'll show up as depression. It'll show up as X, Y, and Z. And you peel back layers, 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 and
0: there's the trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think personally too, that's something like I've noticed in my experience as well i've been going to therapy for years now and it start starts off it for me it started off as like depression was like the one big thing and then as you start dealing with these bigger things that are very apparent you peel back the layers and it's like you really start to get to the core of what it is um how do we and I did, let me know if you want to take this in a different direction but you know how do you get people to recognize one that they that that's what they're experiencing, and that's what they're passing on. But also that, that can be fixed with help, or n- not fixed, but dealt with, right? Resolved. Especially, I think.
2: Um. What one question that we both have—that's like a big question. It's just when we talk to each other, is that how do we get people around us to even accept that? Hey, this is a concern. You know, coming from a professional standpoint, um. It's easy, easier, I guess. um If a professional tells someone, "Hey, like you know what, a problem exists," but sometimes as kids, you now I've gone through this process, it's hard to tell someone elder than you or someone, um, outside someone that you're not comfortable with, you know, in your family circle, to just be like, "Hey, I think some therapy might yeah. exist." <laughs> you need therapy. How do you yeah. convince me? That. That? <laughs> but, but yeah, what what are um your thoughts on this, or, you know, have you had to deal with a situation like this or in your professional standpoint, or how did you navigate something like this? Yeah. So I want to, you know, I think
1: when, when we start doing our own personal work, you know, it's messy, it's hard. And we get to a point where like, ah, you know, some of the healing is happening I'm feeling lighter. And then we're like, this is good stuff. I want everybody to have this. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're like, counseling for everybody which you know obviously I believe in but I'm a little biased and I want to kind of bring us back to we are only ever responsible for ourselves Mm-hmm. right we can't ever make anybody do something that they don't want to do right mm-hmm. and so i want to really bring it back to that that's boundary work is that i can express something to somebody sure and there's a there's a there's a healing way to do it mm-hmm. and what they do with that is their responsibility right my responsibility is okay i said this they maybe didn't respond the way i wanted them to what do i do now that's good for me right -hmm. and so I want to bring it back to that because I think what I end up seeing happening is that people say oh I just got to get them into counseling if they just get into counseling x y and z and the reality is we can't make people do something Mm -hmm. they don't want to do Mm -hmm. and when we do make them they're probably not going to engage with it yeah But I would say in general, if you're concerned about somebody, I think the number one way that we demonstrate for people that it's okay to seek help is by being honest about, hey, I'm seeking help, right? Mm -hmm. That is at the kind of um, individual interacting with the societal level, we can just demonstrate and take the stigma and the shame and sometimes a mystery, right, about what does it look like to go to a counselor, mm-hmm. out, of, uh, out of that, but just naming it, right? Um, another thing you can do is help them to find somebody if they're there.
2: I think one thing that Hamna and I maybe touched upon last season was that our mustards and our community spaces kind of need to also help in de- removing the stigma, from yes. things like that because sometimes like if we're talking about the older generation they won't like listen to the kids saying things like that but if there's like a workshop in the masjid that's like talking about hey therapy is okay or you or know these hubbuzz, are those right yeah like you, hubbuzz, you or like mental wellness because i know like islam talks about mental wellness and yeah. talks crux of it um how, opening up those conversations would also help out in that mm-hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely, because those people have power, right? And mm-hmm. so they're using their power to really normalize
0: a conversation, yeah. Um, going back to one thing you touched upon in this discussion was the idea of boundaries. I think in our culture, it's, at some points, boundaries seem like they're non-existence. And when you try to set those up, it's incredibly, incredibly challenging, right? Um, what, I guess, I don't know, what, is, what have you seen around boundaries in your research or your professional work? Yeah, so
1: boundaries are hard. Across the board, all cultures, all peoples, they're hard because we don't actually have explicit conversations about boundaries. Boundaries are another thing we kind of just inherit from our families of origin, our caretakers, and we never sit down to examine them because, again, we don't have the tools to examine them. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of inherit what, you know, maybe our parents were always the people that never said no. So now we become the people who never said no, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe our pe- our parents were the opposite. Our caregivers were the opposite. They said no all the time. And now we say no all the time, right? And so um, what I see specifically within South Asian and Muslim communities is that Children do not get to have their own boundaries from their parents. And that means things like not being able to say no from going to a party, Mm -hmm. Uh, not being able to say, no, I don't want to, you know, help with the party or, you're creating. Um, no, I don't want to go to that masjid. Um, no, I don't want to study medicine. Um, you know, all these other reasons. And there are a million nuanced reasons why parents may expect those things of their parents, least of which is not survival. Yeah. Right. Um, so I don't want to stigmatize our elders for having those types of boundaries. Um, but I also think that, um, and I'm, I'm doing my own research into this and reading some stuff, I really wonder how colonialism and partition really affected the way that they see parent and, and having those kind of like um, inability to have separate boundaries from each other. um, Because I think that um, uh, my hypothesis is that the effects of colonialism and a really violent British rule and a violent partition affected people in the subcontinent and how they parent their children. And that's just been passed on over the generations. Um, I don't have any specific insights I can give you on that, but that's my hypothesis. Um, so yeah, so that's what I see. I see that children are not able to have their own distinct boundaries from adults. And when, you know, in America, right, adolescents go through this developmental process where they want more autonomy. They want Mm -hmm. to be able to say no to things. They want to be able to make their own decisions. And that doesn't sit well with some Desi and Muslim parents right and that can be seen as disrespectful that can be seen as ungrateful and really that youth is just testing the waters they need Mm -hmm. to be able to do this for themselves because their parents will not always be around to do that for them right um yeah so that's just in a nutshell what i see around boundaries in our communities
0: Mm -hmm. i would i'm so interested in whatever you uncover in your research and you know eventually reading the products of that because god i think that's so fascinating and there has to be something there right like you you can't live through something that traumatic see people die all around you and then not have it affect your personal relationships and the way you engage with people. So,
1: Well, some of the, some of the yeah. connections I'm starting to make around this, and it's not even specifically boundaries, but it's about the, the values that we have currently mm-hmm. um, generally, right? And again, I'm going to preface this by saying, of course, what I'm saying are generalizations. Not all families are like mm-hmm. this. But I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me is many of is like, the focus on wealth. The focus on material wealth, the focus Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. showing wealth, right? I grew up in Houston, huge, huge, um, Uh, interest in that right Mm -hmm. and I I started wondering wow is this connected to the fact that through British rule and partition people had generations of wealth erased generations Mm -hmm. of land taken away their heritage completely ripped away from them so here we are many generations later and was that a value that was passed on to them by okay family we got to get that back You got to do that. Right. I don't know. That's, that's something that I'm noticing and I'm starting to kind of make the connections. And so we can't discount that. That was a hugely traumatic period um, around the world. Colonialism
2: Mm -hmm. has not, not touched somebody in the world please do keep us updated with this research because the more you talk about it the more I, know, I just, just want like, you to talk about yes, this so stuff I'm, I'm kind of I'm right. like oh no we have other points yeah. <laughs> 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 but yeah. I just want to keep on going and I think especially um for myself too um my I did my research thesis in undergrad um from like a neuroscience perspective but it was cultural psychology and neuroscience so all the words that you're using i'm just like okay buzzword buzzword, buzzword. So i feel like i'm back in school i really i'm so engaged right now um, but i want to kind of talk about the specific time that we're in, we're in quarantine we were in lockdown um uh, conversations that are now starting to come out is that there's obviously been a uh, effects on people's mental health. And I think specifics to our communities as well, right? How have you, have you noticed a distinct, um, I guess, that shift or what are patterns you've noticed specifically to like South Asians, Desi, um or even Muslim families and, and how they've been handling quarantine in this situation?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that, you know, the patterns within the communities that I'm in that I've noticed are not dissimilar from the greater patterns of heightened anxiety and depression and heightened social anxiety because for some people, social interactions are like a muscle and they have to exercise that. And when they don't, it's like they atrophy. And so I keep making this joke, but it's like a sardonic joke that – for all of us you know transitioning back to going out for work and going out for social events is kind of takes some learning and we're all just going to be really awkward at first right um, and I say that for myself too um, and so I think the things I'm seeing are like anxiety, depression, loneliness. We know that unfortunately child abuse and domestic violence have increased Mm -hmm. since quarantine because going to school, going to work were the escapes for some people. And that just um, I've, I've sat heavy with that knowing that I don't have a solution, knowing that we haven't come up with a solution for this. We know that hunger has increased because, again, some folks, um, you know, some youth, their, their meals were at school. And so that has been really challenging to see as well. So um, I think one thing that maybe we haven't talked about enough is the sense of grieving and loss. Um, that we've experienced through this pandemic, not just in terms of people that have died, but like what we have lost as a collective, what it has brought up for us, right? We don't often get a chance to sit with ourselves for as long as we have in quarantine, right? And I think many people are not comfortable with that. We use go, 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 go one thing to the other as a way to avoid sitting down with ourselves Uh, and actually being comfortable being alone with ourselves.
2: There's so many conversations that I've had with friends, um, you know, after just like catching up after a couple months of lockdown and like consistently the first thing that has come up is I found out things about myself that I didn't know I was ready to face. And so many people have like discovered like underlying um, mental health concerns that were always present, Mm -hmm. but because they were in that go, go, go mode, they didn't have time to, come to terms with it and now they're they're also realizing that oh that exists one thing um that i kind of wanted to bring up and discuss because you brought up like grief and loss um i know many people have experienced like grief or you know have lost somebody during this period of time it's absolutely terrible but one thing that i kind of noticed was that i I was prepared for, like, the virtual grief. I was, I was prepared for that because um, as a, chi- a child of immigrants, right, um, I have family back home. So they- that's not always accessible to, you know, if you lose someone to go back. But I-, I realized that in the Western Hemisphere, a lot of people were experiencing that for the first time. They didn't know what, like, a funeral over FaceTime looked like. And I think that was just something that just was so... That was a poignant realization for me that, oh, like, this is something really, like, bad to be preferred. Like, I didn't even realize that that was some, that, how my mind operated. So I think that that was just, like, an interesting mm-hmm. thing. Yeah,
1: about. I mean, the way we are grieving the loss of so many things is drastically changed. Like you just said, going mm-hmm. to a funeral via... via you know, video, um, going to a wedding via video. Um, Mm -hmm. the fact that we don't have access to our normal, normal coping tools, right? Um, the fact that even going to target, which I love doing, and I'm not sponsored by target, nor do I want to be, but like, you know, just going and looking at pretty things, let's be honest. Yeah. Sometimes I like doing that. And it's just so much like, Oh, you know, like I have to put on a mask and, you know, I come home and it's like sanitize everything. And so I'm going to do that because that is responsible for the collective and for myself. And there's a heaviness to even doing the things we might normally do before the pandemic. And, you know, uh, the normal even pre-pandemic was not great for so many people i want to be very clear about that and during the pandemic and quarantine we have lost all sense of time you know there's a saying i've been i've been referencing all week you know they say it in relation to children the days are long but the years are short I'm like, this is how 2020 has felt, right? At the same time that I'm like, God, today is never going to end. I'm thinking, wow, the year's almost over. How (laughs) did that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think our sense of grieving and loss is about the people we have lost. And we know that certain communities, like our, our Black communities, our immigrant communities, have been more affected by death as a result of COVID. And, um, also just the grief and loss of, you know, milestones that we don't get to celebrate. Like Mm -hmm. I think about all the graduates this year. I got really sad for them. Right. And here's the thing. We can hold both things at the same time. This is a learned Mm -hmm. skill, but we can do that. We can say, I am lucky to even have gone to college. Mm -hmm. And I am still sad I didn't get to walk and see my parents in the audience, right? I am lucky that I have a roof over my head. And I'm still sad that I have to stay in it 24-7, right? (laughs) Like, both things can be true. And I think this has been the year of learning that skill of how to hold two things together at the same time. And it is a valuable skill that I think many people are never taught to develop. Mm
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to when it comes to just kind of societal pressure in general to be happy, right, or to be excelling at things. I was talking to in my last counseling session. This was something um, my counselor brought brought up is that she said like you keep talking about these expectations you have for yourself at like you want to be operating at this at a certain level of happiness or productivity, and she's like you need to recognize that nothing that's happening around us is normal right now, and it's okay to just be here and be okay, you know, just not being overwhelmingly sad and crying all the time and just being in a neutral space is also fine. And that we need to let go of a lot of these expectations that we have for ourselves on a daily basis.
1: Absolutely. And where did we get those expectations? And um, I started making this joke with um, a friend of mine, like why can't Muslims just be mediocre? Like, why can't I just be yes. mediocre and be okay with it? and people are probably gonna like hear me say this and be like, that's so disingenuous. This is Dr. Ushra, like she's she has all this stuff. And I will tell you that I challenge myself daily on like, why do I want to do this? Why do I have to do this? I've had to let a lot of things go in 2020. Believe me when I say that, right? Um, and And I just think this like wherever this pressure comes from, whether it's capitalism, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's, you know, the cult of productivity, like our parents, intergenerational stuff, to a certain extent, it does not help us. Like, you know, again, the whole two things at the same time, I can be striving towards my goals and I can still be kind to myself. I can be striving towards my goal and still not exhaust myself. We can do both things at the
2: same time. This is the perfect segue into um, how to manage in a space like this. We've also seen therapy go digital. Or do, would you think that it's actually a positive thing? Is it more accessible for folks? Um, and just what, what are some steps that we can take that people listening to this can take into, I guess, managing um, this terrible uh, timescape that we're in?
1: So online counseling has been around for a while. It wasn't quite as mainstream as it is now. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I have always offered online counseling um, since I've been in private practice for various reasons. And the way it, the actual counseling works is slightly different person to person, counselor to counselor. I will tell you that most you will get a link to a safe, secure HIPAA compliant online um, Web portal. And that's where you log in. You just need to have a webcam and internet or data or internet access. And then you can do both audio and video. Some people just do audio. Other people, you know, there's um, certain platforms that do text counseling. Some people really like that. It's about finding what works for you. Mm -hmm. and it might take some experimenting it might take a few sessions and a few counselors to find the right one for you I will say though that research has shown that on like telehealth as in there's a video and there's audio has been shown to be as effective as in-person counseling I will say that I miss seeing some of my clients in person um, all of my clients in person and it's it's introduced new challenges right so Mm -hmm. if you're an art therapist which i'm not then how are you going to do that with them online right Mm -hmm. um and they have found ways right people have found ways to do play therapy online and so i think what's really cool about this is that we've been forced to get innovative and we have risen to the challenge and i will say that my caseload is full and mm-hmm. I think that's because people are like, oh, my God, I need some support. Yes, please. Let's all get the support that we need. Um, so, yeah, it's really important if you are able to. And I think about the convenience factor, too, mm-hmm. is you don't have to, you know, leave the house, drive to your counselor. Um, if you only have one Muslim counselor in your area, which sometimes
0: does happen in the past. Actually, bias. yeah, that's the case when. That's uh, like where I live, you know, there's, yeah, I don't even know if any, there's one, but she's my friend, so uh, I can't do that. Darn,
1: I know. So then you don't have to drive there if they're far away, you know, so there's, there are positives to this. And for me, it is an access issue because there are rural communities where there just aren't enough counselors. And so online counseling in whatever form allows people to get access.
0: This was really great. I think we got such incredible insight from you and uh, we can't wait to see you continuing the work that you do with regards to your research and also on social media. Speaking of which, can you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you? If you would like to
1: connect with me, I am on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Anjameen Ashraf and much less on Twitter, but I'm there at Anjameen Ashraf, mostly because Dr. Anjumina Shrop is too many characters for Twitter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you once again for chatting with us. This has been a really, really profound conversation and one that um, I was looking forward to a lot. We appreciate all your insights. And like Hamna already mentioned, we're very excited for the work that you're about to do. I know I will be following your research um, and keenly following along.